morning, St. Barnabas. Um, the reading this morning is from Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. I trust that you're all there. And so um, we just ask the Lord to um, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in his law. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the Sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. Good morning, church family. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, what does God do when his people are drifting spiritually so that they look just like everybody else? What does God do when the leaders of God's people are actually more interested in their own careers and comfort than their God-given calling? In short, what does God do when Christian culture turns bad and loses its soul. 
I guess that many people today would probably say, well, actually, nothing, really. Uh, the church seems to have been drifting spiritually for years. So, instead of standing on the exclusive claims of Christ, or the authority of Scripture, or God's design for marriage and human sexuality, in many cases, the church has said, we must modernise. Uh, we must embrace the values of the culture. And uh, as for the leaders, well, almost every week, there's another story of a church leader gone bad. So, does God care? Is he going to do anything to sort out the mess? That was something of the situation in Israel when Micah began his ministry. Uh, Micah is one of 12 books, sometimes referred to as the Minor Prophets. But the, the phrase Minor Prophets is rather misleading because it implies that these men and their message were unimportant, and therefore we don't need to listen to them. But the reason that these 12 men are referred to as minor is not because they're unimportant. It's because their books are short. The truth is that each of them was used greatly by God at a major turning point in the history of God's people. And uh, today and next week, we're looking at Micah. Why should we listen to Micah and his friends? Well, the Apostle Peter, I think, sums it up for us in his second letter. You don't need to turn to it, but 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. The Apostle Peter says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophets brought a message from God. And Micah says as much, doesn't he, in the very first verse. He's received a word and a vision from the Lord for the people of God. But what was it? And perhaps more importantly, what does it mean? Well, the place to start is by putting ourselves into the context. Chapter 1, verse 1 gives us the setting. It reads, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now that dates the book to somewhere between 740 and 700 BC. And we know exactly what was happening around that time. A new superpower had arrived on the world stage. It was called Assyria. And it was the greatest superpower the world had ever seen. And it was about to invade the two tiny, minuscule kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And everything in the book of Micah has got that terrifying prospect in the background. So let's have our Bibles open because this morning we're going to do an overview in order to try and wrap our minds around the big picture and that will help us to see what God is saying to us today. The place to begin is by noticing, noticing the main sections in the book. There are three of them. 
Section 1 begins at chapter 1, verse 2. Have a look at it. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all who are in it. So section 1 is addressed to the earth, to the whole world. In other words, Micah has a message for everyone. Section 2 begins at chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. So section 2 is addressed to the rulers and the leaders of God's people. Now turn over to chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, because that is the start of section 3. Chapter 6, verse 1, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Then at the end of verse 2, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. So the third and final section is addressed to the people of God. So have you got the picture? Micah has three sections. It's addressed to three different groups. First to the world, then to the leaders, and finally to the people of God. Now when Micah was writing, everybody was concerned about just one thing. Today, of course, everyone is preoccupied with COVID. It seems we can't talk about anything else. But in Micah's day, everyone was concerned about Assyria. It was a vast empire stretching across what is today Iraq, Syria, and a fair chunk of Iran. And the threat from Assyria is implied in sentence after sentence throughout the book. It was the biggest threat facing the people of God since their bondage in Egypt all that time ago in the time of Moses. How are the people of God doing spiritually? Well, over the centuries, they drifted. They were religious. They saw themselves as God's people. They carried out their religious duties, but they weren't taking God seriously. Yahweh was their national god, in much the same way that the Springboks are the national gods in South Africa today. And their mindset was, well, you know, it's great to know that God is there. Uh, we want him on our team, but he's not essential for life and breath and everything. But now uh, here is this dangerous superpower on the doorstep. It was pagan. It was brutal, and it was totally dismissive of Israel's God. So listen to what Assyria's king, King Sennacherib, said about Israel's God in 2 Kings 18.35. He said, Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So, friends, the rise of Assyria wasn't a small thing. It was a sudden, shattering change that threatened absolutely everything that Israel believed. You see, they'd come to think of themselves as being at the centre of the world. 
They believed they were safe under God's protection. But the rise of Assyria forced them to realise they weren't quite as safe as they thought. Assyria, you see, was bringing them face to face with a modern, unstoppable, godless world. And so God sent Micah. Micah's name means, who is like the Lord? That's what the name Micah means. And the whole book is really a debate about what the God of the Bible is really like. And Micah shows us what God is like by making three vital connections or links that Israel had forgotten and which we so easily overlook today. So first of all, in chapter 1 and verse 2, Micah shows us the link between the local and the global. Or, if you want to bring it to the front door of St Barnabas, he shows us the link between Weinberg and the world. So come with me to verse 2. Uh, here, you peoples, all of you, now, what is Micah doing here? Well, he's inviting the whole world to witness God acting in judgment against his own people. He presents God as the advancing destroyer. So, verse 3, he says, The Lord is coming down from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. And why is that happening? Verse 5, all this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. And uh, as Assyria invaded, verse 5, uh, Samaria in the north was the first to fall, and it fell in 721 BC. And all of a sudden, almost overnight, God's people were left with only a third of their original territory. And in the verses that follow, Micah gives us a, a description of the disaster that would overtake the entire Northern Kingdom. All that was left was the, the South, including Micah's own district. But in verse 10, Micah says that that district will fall as well. Verse 10 begins, tell it not in Gath. <clears throat> Now he's quoting there from David's lament over the death of Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 20. But it's interesting because Gath was actually next door to Micah's own town of Moresheth. So in verse 14, just notice this, the names of the two towns are joined together. Do you see that? Moresheth, Gath. Where is Moresheth Gath today? Nobody knows. It was totally destroyed by the Assyrian forces. In fact, all those names in verses 10 to 14 were part of the same district, all part of Micah's own district, which was west of Jerusalem. Apparently, it was a beautiful, fertile plain. It was ideal for crops, ideal for livestock, some say that it was the finest part of Israel. And that was Micah's homeland and he loved it. But all of those places in verses 10 to 14 were wiped off the map. 
So try to imagine Micah before the Assyrian invasion standing on his stoop and looking out over that fertile landscape and pronouncing God's coming judgment on every single village. Lachish is mentioned in verse 13 and they do know where that is because archaeologists have excavated the site right down to the level that dates back to Micah's time. But instead of finding foundations and the remains of walls, there is just a thick layer of ash, proving that the town was burnt to a cinder by the Assyrians. The conquest, Micah says, would happen when life was continuing as normal in Judah. So chapter 2 verse 1 says that the rich were on their beds, and in verse 2 of chapter 2, the property speculators were exploiting the poor and the disadvantaged, just as they do today. But you see, Micah relates what was happening locally to God's actions on the stage of world history. According to the newspapers of the time, the Assyrians had the world at their feet. They were in charge. But Micah's message is that behind the Assyrians stands God himself. And Micah is announcing it for the whole world to hear. So there is a link between the local and the global. Micah's trying to give us a picture of God governing the affairs, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. He had Assyria as well as Israel firmly in his grasp. And God was using Assyria to punish evil among his own people. So just look at the beginning of chapter 2 again with me, if you will. Chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. Now, what is that woe? Verse 3 tells us. Therefore, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. Now, I'm sure you can see that uh, Micah's preaching wouldn't have been very popular. Everyone, in fact, wanted him to shut up. The kind of message people wanted to listen to on Sunday mornings is described for us in chapter 2, verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, well, he would be just the prophet for this people. So you see, the kind of preacher they wanted was someone who would promise them what you and I today might call the good life. The problem was, of course, that the good life was about to disappear. Now, if you think about it, it's not so very different, is it, from our situation today? Because everyone loves the preacher who entertains them, a few jokes, a few good stories, or the preacher who promises health, wealth and happiness, the good life. But you see, ever since COVID has invaded our lives, for many people, hope has been replaced by fear, the freedom of the good life has been replaced by the bondage of lockdowns, loneliness and hardship. These are realities for us here in Cape Town, but they're also global realities. 
And the question for us this morning is, could the God of the Bible really be as powerful as that? Could the God of the Bible really be in sovereign control of absolutely everything? In fact, could he be using the pandemic to wake us up? Now, all of that is section one. Micah shows us the connection between the local and the global, between Weinberg and the world. Then in section two, Micah shows us the link between the imperfect and the ideal. So in uh, chapter three and verse one, uh, Micah moves from addressing the world at large to the leaders and rulers of Israel. Verse 1, then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? And then he goes on to elaborate the scandals, which were a disgrace to the high calling of their office as prophets and priests. Because instead of serving the people, we're told what they were actually doing was exploiting them. And verse 11, chapter 3, describes what was actually happening. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. So friends, here is the imperfect side of Micah's prophecy as he looks to the rulers and the leaders of Israel. The leaders of God's people were thoroughly corrupt. And of course that speaks to us, doesn't it? Because we see sadly the same thing today. You know that, it's everywhere. In fact, just this week, the former president of this country was given a jail sentence. But you know, I think as well as I do, that Africa as a whole seems to have elevated corruption to an art form. Some of you will remember Dr. Alfred Sebaheni uh, from Tanzania, who was with us when we planted St Barnabas ten years ago. He did his PhD on this very subject of corruption. And he discovered that corruption was costing Africa 5,000 US dollars every second. But that was back in 2012. I'm sure it's at least double that today. But of course it's not only in government, is it? It's in the church as well. I suppose the most Notorious example recently is Shepard Bashiri, who claims to be a prophet, but uh, he and his wife are accused of stealing more than six million US dollars from the church through theft, money laundering and fraud right here in South Africa. Uh, they may be the most extreme example, but friends, they are not alone. So I think and I suggest to you that verse 11 could easily have been written this week. You see, a church leader can do one of two things. Either we can direct our energies into looking after our own interests, and by the way, God will let us do that, he won't stop us, or we can direct our energies to serving God and his interests and trust him to look after us. Well, Israel's leaders had only been looking after themselves. And Micah's words in chapter 3, verse 12, were never forgotten by those who heard them. 
Look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, because of you, that is, you leaders, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the Temple Hill a mound overgrown with thickets. The process had already started, and it wasn't long before Sennacherib of Assyria was able to boast that he had conquered 46 of Hezekiah's strong-walled towns and countless smaller villages. The areas surrounding Jerusalem would be the first to go, and Sennacherib would say later, I captured 200,000 people, young and old, male and female, and counted them as spoils of war. And my dear friends, the astonishing thing is that behind this disaster, behind this terrifying pagan conqueror, stood the Lord God himself. So there is the imperfect side of Micah's picture. But Micah shows us the link between the imperfect and the ideal because chapter 4 leads us in a new direction. And chapter 5 pulls back the curtain to reveal God's solution. Now in this section, Micah's answering the question, what is leadership for? Now remember he's talking to the leaders and he's basically saying it's not to feed yourself. No, it's to provide hope and a new vision for the unbelieving world and the whole human race. So come with me please to chapter 4 verse 1. Chapter 4 verse 1. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. Now, friends, you see, that is what leadership is for. By the way, these verses are an exact parallel with Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. We don't actually know which of the two prophets wrote them down first, but they are stunning words, aren't they? Because, you see, the prophet is, as it were, scanning the horizons of time. And he telescopes time in the most amazing way, looking beyond the immediate threat from Assyria. And he says, look, this is God's plan. God's plan is a universal kingdom under the rule of God. So when it comes to leadership, Micah sees a link between the imperfect and the ideal. You see, the prophets had this God-given ability to, as it were, telescope history to bring the far-off plans of God right into the present so that God's people would live their lives with that future certainty fixed in their minds. And chapter 4 is showing leaders the real purpose of their role. What is it? It is to speak and teach the nations of the world the ways of the Lord. In other words, it's mission. But Micah goes even further than that. 
because in chapter 5 he introduces us to the perfect universal ruler that was coming into the world. And he's saying, look, you rulers, I'm telling you what you should be like. And now I'm going to introduce you to the perfect coming ruler. And by the way, he's going to come from one of those tiny provincial towns in Judah. So come with me, please, to chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And rather than exploiting his people, verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So you see the great messianic secret is out. And Christians, of course, love Micah for this little bit of the prophecy alone. Carol services at Christmas feature this wonderful prediction of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's on the strength of these verses that centuries later, King Herod would order that all the little boys in Bethlehem should be slaughtered in a desperate attempt to destroy the Messiah, because he was told, Bethlehem's the place. And Micah, you see, is saying to us, how amazing is it that the world's ideal ruler will come from little Bethlehem. And then the rest of chapter 5 develops the theme that whatever happens to Israel, there will always be a remnant, verse 7. A remnant who will be called to serve among the peoples of the world. Uh, Mike has a beautiful phrase to describe them. He says that they will be like a refreshing dew from the Lord, while God exercises his judgment among the nations. So we're nearly through, but Mike has got one last thing to say. Let me check you're with me so far. We've heard that the message to the world in chapter 1 and verse 2, where Micah highlights the link between what's happening locally and what God is doing globally. And in that section, God is presented to us as the coming destroyer and judge. And we've heard the message to the leaders in chapter 3, verse 1, where Micah, as it were, lifts our eyes beyond the imperfect to the ideal, introducing God himself as the leader who is to come. And now lastly, in chapter 6 and 7, there is the message to God's people themselves, where God is introduced as, well, a kind of counsellor, or if you like, heavenly lawyer. Because here, Micah shows us the link between the irreversible and the negotiable, <clears throat> between what seems to be fixed and unavoidable and what actually could be averted if God's people respond in the right way. So come with me to chapter 6, verse 1 and following. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord 
has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. So you see, God is described as a lawyer presenting his case to his people. And these two final chapters are a debate. Uh, as we read them, we have to be quite careful to make sure we know who's speaking at any particular point. But I suggest to you in verses 1 to 5, God is speaking. He's reminding his people how he's redeemed them and helped them in the past. And then in verse 6, Micah, as it were, imagines Israel's collective reply. And the emphasis here is not so much on the sins of God's people, terrible as those sins are, but rather their misguided attitude to the Lord in verses 6 and 7. And you see, the question here is, can endless religious activities of various sorts impress God? And the prophet answers by saying, no, they can't. What's needed is the right attitude. It's a relationship. It's the right course of action. You see, Micah here is addressing his contemporaries, the men and women who lived in his own neighbourhood. And over the years, they've lost their way spiritually, they've become weary. And I suggest to you that there's no anger in these verses. Rather, I think the atmosphere is one of pity. Micah's sad that these people have misunderstood God so badly. And what he says is that God only requires three things from his people. And there they are at the end of verse 8. And you'll notice immediately that there's nothing there about religious activity or sacrifices or anything like that. They're actions. What are they? Well, it's, it's acting justly, it's loving mercy, and it's walking humbly with God. It's so simple, isn't it? There's absolutely nothing academic or churchy about that. Any Christian can do those three things, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. And I'm going to say more about that next week, God willing. But as the debate continues in these two chapters, the question is, what is irreversible and what is negotiable or changeable? Now, remember the context here. Assyria is on the march. Verse 9 Listen, the Lord is calling to the city. Verse 13, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. Now the idea you see is that Sennacherib and his army are already on the way. Judgment has already started. It's irreversible. Or is it? All the verses actually right through to chapter 7 verse 7 are a description of a society that has lost its soul and is heading for disaster. And yet at various points Micah as it were lifts the curtain a little bit and reveals an area of hope, of recovery. And one of those is in chapter 7 verse 8. 
Uh, Israel's enemies may gloat about what's going to happen. Micah warns them not to do that because, yes, the walls of Jerusalem are going to be flattened. But in verse 11, he says, the day for building your walls will come. And you see, he's seeing the day there centuries later when Nehemiah is going to start a rebuilding program for Jerusalem. And so the last words here are words of hope. And the last three verses of chapter 7 are, I think, one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole Bible. So maybe, depending on how we react to God's dealings with us, some things that appear to be irreversible are in fact negotiable. Maybe that's the case for someone listening this morning. Maybe you're heading in a direction that you know is against God's will. And deep down, you know that it's a direction that will, in the end, lead to disaster. But you see, the message is it doesn't have to be that way. And perhaps God is speaking to you this morning saying, let's discuss this, because there's a better way. And Micah's words are God's word to us. As I said earlier, Micah's listeners never forgot his prediction in chapter 3, verse 12, that Zion will be a ploughed field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. How do we know that? Well, we know it because a hundred years later, there was a big debate as to whether the prophet Jeremiah should be killed for his predictions. But somebody spoke up in his defence. And his words are recorded for us in Jeremiah 26 and verse 18. This is what he said. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or anyone else in Judah, put him to death? That's what that person said, and the answer, of course, was no. What actually happened was that Hezekiah the king became famous for one of the greatest times of reform and revival among the people of God. And Micah's preaching had everything to do with it. So although Sennacherib of Assyria caused immense destruction in Judah, he never actually conquered Jerusalem. In fact, his entire army were wiped out overnight by some strange God-given plague while they were camped outside the city. 185,000 soldiers perished. And you can read about that later in 2 Kings 19. And the fate that overtook Samaria in 721 BC during Micah's ministry wasn't repeated in Jerusalem for well over a hundred years. So God's devastating judgment was averted and that in large measure was because of the message of Micah. So friends, we're going to pray now, and what we're going to do is read verses 18 to 20 of chapter 7 as a prayer.
I will lead us. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, let's say these words together. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Amen.